Salutations. This is Kurt. Welcome to the third and largest portion of Book One. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we advise you strap on your armor. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments and questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. Please buy me a coffee to help keep the productions coming. And thank you so much for listening. Watch where you're stepping! Ah. Oof! Ready to lift the game! Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. Okay, let's take a breath. This is episode one. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book one. Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. Chapter 1. Maximilian knew it was only his imagination. His overworked mind was playing tricks on him. Over the years, he had gotten used to his mental subterfuge whenever things got a little out of hand, whenever he didn't want to admit he was scared. But he was no stranger to the workings of black magic, and this was nothing different from what he had practiced before, except in depth. The smaller gremlins were easy to conjure and control, but true demon conjuring could be frightening. The irony was, one had to keep control of this same fear in order to be strong enough to dominate the Horned One that answered. Though this was his first time using a primary calling, he felt something was not as it should be. He knew better than to dismiss the occurrence as a trick of the eyes. For a brief moment, just as he concentrated on focusing power through the pentagram, Shadows coalesced above the central candle, and it seemed as if they would devour its flame. But he wasn't about to stop, lest he loose something upon himself with an incomplete casting. First was the calling, then came the leash. Clamping down on the steerings of his apprehension, he intoned the words of the spell one last time. The flame flickered ever so slightly from the stirring of his breath, then stilled again. He listened anxiously to the silence that followed, waiting to see if it happened again, the whisper and the gathering of the shadows like an ethereal thunderhead. After a long minute of nothing... He stepped away from the candles burning within the carefully chalked pattern on the floor. 
He had clutched in fright, like a bloody child, when the shadow had flitted over the candle. In so doing, he had sabotaged any further progress. For now, at least, there will be more attempts. Switching on the overhead fluorescence, he shook off the fading vestiges of his dread, checked his watch, then patted his pockets for his cigarettes. He gazed thoughtfully at the candles burning steadily, inwardly amused with how foolish the whole affair always looked under the glare of artificial light. But he knew better, being a well-practiced warlock and familiar with the ways of magic. He savored the sweet sting of the cigarette, while at the same time reminding himself for the thousandth time, I'll have to quit these damned things sometime soon, but not today. It helped to settle his rattled nerves. He went back to the candles. Their greasy smoke mingled with his own and rose to obscurity in the ceiling. Another convenient reason he couldn't quit smoking. His cigarette provided an excellent foil for anyone who might smell the candles. He gathered all six holders and placed them carefully in the bottom drawer of his credenza, locked it, then tapped Ash into the crystal dish on his desk and poked the intercom button on his telephone. Louise? Yes, Dr. Brint? What time is that department meeting? One thirty, and I've finished your grant report. Did you want to prove it? He scowled at his watch for a moment, tugged at his goatee thoughtfully, and squinted at the curl of smoke that brushed his face. Mm, no, I'll trust you, dear. Go ahead and make three copies and slide them to the usual heads via inter-office mail. And thank you. Yes, Doctor. He looked around, enjoying the spaciousness of his lab. The American medical schools are so generous. Picking up his wallet and keys, he went back across the room and kicked at a small roll of embroidered carpet to cover up his pentagram, then checked his watch again. Hmm, enough time for lunch on campus before the weekly who's doing what and why meeting. He smirked darkly at the thought of hearing more complaints from those of his colleagues who were having strange difficulties with their equipment. Nothing like a gremlin set loose to stir things up. As Dr. Maximilian Brent locked the door of his lab, any lingering memory of the shadow over the candles dissipated, as well as that of the whisper. Paul drummed his fingers on his small desk, then hopped up from his chair and paced back and forth across his floor, avoiding the odd dirty sock or shirt in his path. Cramming for the history midterm isn't so bad, but coupled with worrying over my student loan applications for graduate school and reviewing stage directions for the latest acting assignment make all three tasks difficult. My housekeeping chores have suffered from neglect as well, he grimaced inwardly at the state of disarray that had settled over his room. He stopped pacing to stare blankly out the tall window at the afternoon sun. After a few moments of indulging his weary eyes, he cast a sidelong glare at the unfinished application on his desk. Maybe I should put it aside until after the exam. 
Hell, I'm just kicking myself through self-made hoops again. The application isn't due to be mailed for another month. He leaned against the cool metal of the window frame. At least Marie doesn't have it so hard. God, it makes me think she has it too easy sometimes. Ever since his female companion had arrived, things had miraculously fallen into place for her. Her tuition was paid in advance, living quarters arranged. She'd gotten her pick of courses, studies that would have been denied one of her social rank on Fayek, if indeed some of the courses even exist at the primitive royal college she mentions from time to time. Paul's gaze moved unseeing along the outlines of houses beyond the campus fence as he smiled with his warm thoughts of Marie and her excitement with the variety of classes she had the freedom to explore. He had explained to her the catalog pages describing the courses. She has a strong interest in the basic medical studies, anatomy, physiology, biology. It only makes sense. Who on her world would pass up a chance to find out how the body really works? How its healing processes function? But aside from her hunger for knowledge, there was a small factor that disturbed him, if only mildly. Marie had been able to read English from the moment she had encountered the language, while on the other hand, he had not been able to understand the written language of Fayek. Or of her kingdom, at least. He puzzled over this inconsistency until a possible solution surfaced from the depths of his intuition. Perhaps I can't read their language because, even as the Prince of Light, I'm a stranger to their soil. Perhaps somewhere on Fayek, there is a written language and a people I can understand. The mere fact of his dark skin being unknown to the people of the Western Kingdom Anariak had mentioned other lands, including a desert empire far to the east, said one of two things. Either they have no dark-skinned races on their planet, or they have only partial knowledge of their world. The latter theory seems more likely, in light of my history exam and the accountings of Europeans meeting Native Americans, white meaning red. His muse was interrupted, and he turned to smile warmly at the young woman of his thoughts as she stepped in with an armload of books and his large leather satchel slung over her shoulder. Marie smiled cheerfully at him as she carefully stacked the books on the counter beside the small sink, then slung the satchel off her shoulder and laid it on the floor. Thank you for letting me use your bag, Paul, though I checked out more books than it could carry. She tucked a forelock of her dark hair behind an ear. They're as heavy as a good saddle. Paul grinned, always glad when she would compare things of both worlds. In that, he knew they would never be too far away. Are you all right, love? She stared innocently at his cherubic expression. Fine, Marie, fine. He came away from the window and took her in his arms. You never cease to amuse me with your discoveries. She pulled away from their embrace enough to judge his expression. Have I done something funny again? Not really, no. Though I'm sure you left the librarians wondering what kind of speed reader you are. He counted the stack of books silently, then guessed how many more were stuffed into his bulging satchel. She glanced at the pile of texts. Oh, did I take too many? No. Hmm... Animal psychology, horse psychology, 
It's just that not many people tend to take that all-you-can-carry policy of the library seriously. Speaking of which, I thought they had an eight-book limit there. Oh, they do. But I could not resist reading about psychology after you told me what it was, so I took some out in your name. And those... She touched the bindings of some ominously thick black books. ...are from the medical library. <sighs> Glad you're strong enough to carry all of those. Now that you say that, I did notice other girls who didn't carry much, except some who had their boyfriend's help. No wonder they looked at me so strangely. Don't worry about it. He pulled her into his arms again and delighted in the sweetness mm. of her hair. He remembered her irritation at not finding any tree soap... Whatever that is. ...with which to wash it until he introduced her to shampoo. Since then, she had delighted in the stuff, except for the heavily perfumed brands. Thankfully. They were probably jealous of your strength and independence. She squeezed him affectionately, then disentangled herself from his reluctant arms and stepped over to his desk to see what he was reading. How are you studies going? Ready for this test? He sat wearily in his chair. <sighs> Marie placed herself in his lap without a glance while she read the application booklet curiously. This doesn't look like history. No, I've taken a break from that to work on my loan application. He rubbed his eyes. I've probably bitten off more than I can chew for the moment. Are you eating something? No, no. He kept forgetting her unfamiliarity with the colloquialisms of his world. It means I've taken on more work than I can handle at the moment. You can do it. She put aside the booklet and rested her arms around his neck. I just wish it was as easy for me as it seems to be for you. What do you mean? She nuzzled his cheek. Things have worked out so nicely for you since you arrived. Having all your tuition and living arrangements set, being able to read English, and guzzling knowledge. He gestured at the pile of library books. Like some who quaff beer. She rested her head on his shoulder. Maybe it's because you have it so easy in my world. As usual, her quiet and sudden insights stunned him. Good point. Though, I can't truly say I actually read your language. It's strange. I look at the... the ciphers? Letters. Yes, the letters. And the meaning just comes across. They talk to me, sort of. He looked thoughtful for a moment. I can only figure some sort of psychic translation going on. It would be nice if that same worked for me on Fayek. Each basked in the warmth of their closeness. Paul caressed his fingers lightly over hers and considered their relationship, realizing that though their affection for each other had deepened with each passing day, they had never ventured further into the realms of physical intimacy. May I ask something a little out of the ordinary, Marie? She looked at him wide-eyed. As if I don't. Of course. How do you... How does your society view sex? Sex? You mean the difference between us? No, no. <sighs> I knew this wouldn't be easy. By sex, I mean the intimate physical touching between couples. You know, like husband and wife? Oh, yes. Sharing love. Sharing love. 
I suppose I should have said making love. Odd. Doesn't your society already have love to share? Do they have to make it? The vernacular may be different, but the meaning is the same. Oh. But getting back to my question, when is it considered proper for people to share love? She rolled her eyes. Oh, the priests of the ancient harp on the subject continually, reminding those who listen of the sanctity of love sharing and to preserve it for the marriage bed and the religious punishment for disobeying this creed. Many do not heed, of course. But you are a free thinker, right? How do you view it? Similarly, though the master stresses only that one should share love when you are sure you have found the one with whom you wish to stay for this life, as opposed to ritual stake planting to demonstrate ownership of a woman as done by the followers of the ancients. Finding himself over his head on the subject of Phaeacian religions and the fundamental differences between them, he had only observed the farewell between Enchanter Gaewan and Marie when they had discovered they were both freethinkers. Paul resolved to discuss the matter at length with her at some point, especially this master to whom she refers. Strangely enough, what you describe sounds like the various attitudes on this world. I'm glad you aren't a believer of the archaic teachings. So that's what those girls were talking about. I couldn't understand why they were so excited about having sex with someone. I thought they had discovered gender identity or some such nonsense. I was tempted to mention I had realized my sex since birth. I'm glad I didn't. They would have thought you were bragging. Indeed. In retrospect, they seem more like boastful guardsmen coming down from the courtesans' rooms in the taverns. She smiled inwardly at the amusing memory, then peered sideways at Paul. Why do you ask? Did you want to share love with me? His jaw dropped. I've been asked before, you know. I'm not naive like some young kitchen wrench. Why, I... I... He found himself thrust forward into a confusion of feelings, taken aback by her openness, ecstatic and aroused at her insight, embarrassed that she had guessed his motives, even though they appeared blatantly obvious. Because if you do, I wouldn't mind. Her eyes softened as she looked into his. I feel very strongly about you. She reached a hand to her blouse and started to pull it from her shoulder. Gathering his wits quickly, Paul shut his mouth and placed his hand over hers to prevent her from undressing. That isn't necessary, Marie. It's too soon. And it's not that I don't want to. He added upon her curious gaze. It's just that I've felt so content simply being with you, holding you. He caressed her cheek. And loving you, like this. She glowed with warm affection and nodded with understanding. I'm sure someday we will share love. I was only curious about the traditions of Fayek and how you felt about such things. I think what you're describing may have something to do with the potion we were given. She cupped his cheek in her hand. This contentment you and I feel for each other? You mean it's not real? No, no, love. Of course it's real. Remember what Gaewan said? For those who love, it deepens awareness of such. Oh, yeah. Is that why even when we argue, we don't really feel mad at each other? Of course, you silly bird. 
She pressed her mouth softly to his. Paul wrapped his arms snugly around her, pulled her close, and for the first time allowed his senses to respond freely to the electricity of their closeness. Releasing her after their long kiss, he found himself staring blankly at the wall and wondering about the enchanter whom they had met two months past. In foreign? On Fayek? Every now and again, he couldn't help but reflect on the astounding events that had brought him and his lady together. And yet, who would ever believe it? What are you thinking, love? She rested comfortably on his lap within his arms. About Gaywan, what he's doing, where he's doing it, you know. Me too, from time to time. Especially the last time we saw him, how strange he seemed. Yeah, but I don't suppose we'll know any time soon, if ever. <sighs> I feel a nap coming on. Care to join me? Oh, I'm too awake right now. You go ahead and sleep. I want to read some of my book. She got off his lap, then stopped halfway across the room and looked back at him. Is that all right? He smiled sleepily. Sure, sure. Only... He was remembering a windy hillock and flowers and butterflies. Don't leave me. Her eyes glowed with the same memory of their last moments on Fayek. Never. Drifting off to sleep as Marie sat beside him and quietly flipped pages in a thick book, Paul flew in a dream he would not remember. Beneath him was a mountain nestled among others, lush and green. His perspective rushed down toward a crumbling, vine-choked archway, the portal to a forgotten place. Instantly he was engulfed as he ran through a dim antechamber where a broken headless statue beckoned with a single remaining arm toward a gloomy tunnel fading into black. Shafts and dark chambers passed almost unseen as his dream vision plummeted. Soon he caught a glimmer of light and he hurried to it like a moth to the flame. An invisible spirit, he raced up behind, then alongside five persons scurrying down what could be nothing other than a downward-sloping mine shaft. A single sphere of yellow chased above and ahead of them. All were clad in soiled cloaks, over tunics covering worn leather and muddy boots. The gleam of edged weapons winked among them, armored belts, swords, quivers, and bows. Packs and sacks made them look humpbacked, despite their agility. They slowed as the tunnel made a sharp turn to a straight section, ending in a door. Halt! Enchanter Gaywan halted his companions with a raised hand as he studied the corridor stretching before them. Dead-end door. Clough! He raised a finger for his tall elfin second to join him. Can you sense a trap? Clough cocked his head as he too scrutinized the straightaway, then wrinkled his nose. I'm not sure if I can. 
but it smells different from the rest of this place. Fresh feces instead of stale. Cowron must not be far. This must be his lair, else he would have taken a different route to lose us, which wouldn't be hard down here. Damn him. He had agreed to carrying out this manhunt partly as a favor to the marshal, partly because the hunted was a mage and therefore he, an enchanter, was better suited to handle the outlaw, and partly because he and his companions needed the money. But spending more than three days underground had not been mentioned at the time they agreed to the task. From the moment they entered the underground labyrinth in search of this renegade criminal, it had been a run of bad luck. About to give up the hunt, they had caught a glimpse of a robed man scurrying down a side tunnel. Knowing it to be their quarry, only sought-after lawbreakers and vermin would choose to hide in the long-abandoned grotto with its crumbling ancient shafts. They pursued him, always just within sight, to this point. Thasgar stepped close, his hand gripped in readiness around the hilt of his sword. Forward or back, the longer we stand here, the more likely he'll be gone. Gawain peered at Clough questioningly. Forward. If he's not behind that door, we'll let go the chase. The archer swordsman nodded agreement. Aye, that. Who goes first? Me. He reached a hand to the clasp of his cloak, unseen. He glanced upward at his small sphere of light and flicked his eyes to Clough. The glowing ethereal ball wandered over and stopped above the elf's head. Clough watched with an inner twinge of uneasiness as, with a clever wink, the enchanter shimmered out of sight. Gawain had found the lining of his cloak, that which gave it the unusual property of rendering its wearer invisible, in the late Master Rothson's chambers in Foran during a recent trip there and back again. Such rare garments were mostly legends. In his experiments, Gawain deduced the cloak rendered him invisible by heightening his physical vibrations. Clough perceived the trauma his love brother had suffered during the journey to his homeland. Traveling to meet his teacher only to learn of his gruesome death, crossing wits against specters, and a demigod and his lady in peril. Clough knew there was nothing for it but to carry on with life and hope events settled to some pattern of normalcy. Unfortunately, the bounty hunting, a task they regularly performed for the marshal, especially when they were in need of sustenance, had turned sour. Just past their small pool of light, Clough saw the crude door opening, no doubt by Gawan's unseen hand. Where's he going now? Flaina, Gawan's half-elfin lady companion and newest member of the small group, came forward. I think he's tired and wants to get this over with. He's not the only one. Dwarfen Gon, shadow and best friend to Thasgar, glared grumpily at nothing in particular, his thick beard and heavy eyebrows bristling. I've been in many a mine, but this place is nothing more than a glorified pong hole. Flaina and Thasgar nodded agreement hmm. as they exchanged glances. Where else would a murderer hide? 
the lost city of the underground, a strange haunted shell of what once had been a magnificent maze of rooms, arenas, tunnels, and chambers, had long ago been abandoned by the forefathers of men. Just within a day's ride of civilization, it had become a common hideout for all manner of outlaws. Clough turned an ear to the open door. Listen. Have you? Clough! The enchanter's light sphere followed dutifully as the elf made for the dark chamber. He stopped and turned his head this way and that. Damn it, man! Where are you? Here! Holding the hood over his captive's face, Gawan dragged a struggling, short, cloaked form towards the small pool of light surrounding his second. Is that him? Thasgar, Flaina, and Gon entered with weapons at the ready. Clough reached down and yanked back the dark cloth, then turned his head. The overwhelming stench of feces nearly made him vomit. Damn! Ah! A grub! No! Gawan released the gaping, groaning thing and stepped back. What's worse, the sight or the stench? The pale, pasty-fleshed creature, a disfigured, inbred human reduced to little more than animal instincts, plodded forward, its bulging eyes rotating as it grinned almost gleefully with nasty, pointed, hole-ridden teeth and brought up a crude knife to swing at the enchanter. A trick! Calron was warned! Disgusting thing! Clough ran it through quickly. Damn! We've lost our advantage and our quarry. Retreat may be wise, Gaywan. Clough began backing towards the door. It's too late for that, my fools. Torches all along distant walls burst into flame, illuminating the chamber, revealing it to be an arena much larger than anyone had first supposed. Through a tall archway on the far wall opposite the door came a young, fair-haired girl wearing a ragged and pale dress with many gaping holes revealing fair skin and one of her ample breasts. At her heels came a hooded man robed in crimson and black, a striking contrast to the dull gray of the mud and stone making up the underground grotto. He strode confidently into the chamber, stopped at her side, and threw back his hood to reveal a bushy head of curly fair hair and striking blue-white eyes. He surveyed the bounty hunters, grinning gleefully in unconscious imitation, no doubt, of his grub. So excellent of you to find me. Dare I say you've won your little game? Game? You are Calron, are you not? I am Calron, master of this corner of the lost city. Won't you grant me the favor of your name? He's dead. The young girl at his side ran to where the grub lay stiffening on the ground. Deja, leave it be. I will give you another. She touched the dead thing's filthy skin with fondness for an instant, then returned to the man's side. 
Pouting quietly, she tugged uselessly at her dress <laughs> as she tried to cover her exposed bosom. Removing a palm-sized silver sphere from a pocket of his robe, Calron handed it to her. Play with this for a moment, my dear, while we chat with our visitors. She examined it with the wide-eyed wonder of a child. Seeing they held the advantage, there were five of them to Calron and his wench. Gawan flicked his eyes at Clough, who barely nodded, then stepped forth. Dark mage or no, this man ran from the law rather than challenged it in trial against a magistrate. Therefore, he was outmatched and afraid. Mage Calron, you are formally charged with harmful sorcery and murder and... Indeed, I'm sure I've broken more petty rules than that. Am I wanted dead or alive? Will you run me through like my pet grub here and drag my body like a wretched rag doll back to Hopetown? We are neither judges nor executioners. He signaled his companions to surround and contain the mage. In the name of the king and the marshal, we hereby arrest you. I think not, Gawan. Endgame! Calron's hand darted to the girl, snatched the silver sphere, and slammed it viciously to the floor. <laughs> a full light flashed, and a cloud of putrid smoke exploded upward. Gawan managed to move only a few steps backward before the sickly sweet smell of the cloud forced him to inhale. A thick, heavy syrup poured through his veins, slowing and quickly locking his muscles and limbs in mid-motion. At the same time, his mind remained alert and he struggled to gain control of his unresponsive body. Just before the smoke obscured his vision, he saw Clough apparently unaffected and frowning at each of his friends as he realized what was happening to them. Thasgar, Gon, Gawan, and Flaina had all come to an abrupt stop, frozen in their tracks like living statues. Clough weighed the situation quickly. Frequently, when alchemy was used, only the mage knew how to undo it. And though in an instant he could easily slip through the settling smoke and run Calron through before the mage knew what was upon him, it would not do to destroy the only solution to the sudden problem of his friend's affliction. Clough lowered his sword and imitated their actions, frustrated with not being able to exploit the momentary advantage. <laughs> What an advantageous visitation by fools. Calron strode through the fog and stopped in their midst. I never thought there would be someone bold enough to undertake a hunt for me. Stand up straight. Gawan and his friends complied, helpless to do otherwise. Tisha frowned at the rigid group, then looked questioningly at Calron. They can't hurt us now, my young morsel. He carelessly tossed his hand. Perhaps I will make one of them a playmate for you after we've found my prize. Though Tisha smiled with childlike innocence, Flaina noticed something deeper in the girl's eyes that disturbed her. Something hungry. I wonder how such a fragile-looking creature lives this deep in a hole underground. The enchanter silently cursed himself for underestimating Calron 
and wondered if the alchemy, like most, would wear off. Thasgar and Gon, having little knowledge about sorcery or magic or transmutative alchemy, struggled futilely with bodies that would not respond, eventually worrying about what was going to happen to them and if they would ever get a chance to fight back. Except for a rawness in his lungs, Clough was sure he was unaffected, but he pretended to be controlled like the others. He noticed Flaina shaking her head and coming out of the effect, and deduced her half-elfin blood gave her immunity. Calron <laughs> leered gleefully at the silent rank. I should slit your throats and chop off your limbs to feed my grubs. However, I have other needs. Rolf, Gunther. Footsteps resounded from the archway behind him, and he turned away from the group. Clough took this moment to signal Flaina amidst her confusion. She took in the situation as she saw it, and nodded her understanding just before Calron glanced back, with suspicion darkening his pale eyes. Two figures shuffled nervously in the shadows of the entryway. Stop skulking and get in here! Answering his demand were two shabbily clothed, cruel-lipped, fair-haired men. Clough and Flaina restrained their immediate displeasure upon seeing the two shape-changers. The men had intercepted them in a deep shaft two days ago, and hinted at the whereabouts of Calron's lair, only to abandon them soon after, leaving them hopelessly turned around within the depths of the underground. The taller of the two, Gunther, had taken interest in Flaina and tried to kill Gaewan in an archaic tradition that was supposed to make her his woman. Upon failing, he vowed vengeance and disappeared with Rolf. She stewed with impotent fury as they inspected her companions with noticeable satisfaction. Oh, it's the hunting party. Good of you to warn me when you did. I allowed them to chase my pet grub down here. Now I have living slaves as fodder for the dragon, instead of stumbling waste meat. Do you know anything else about them that you didn't mention before? I don't think so. Gunther pointed at Flaina. This half-blood is supposed to be mine, but she resists. He strolled over and eyeballed her pruriently. Stupid girl. He lifted a hand to fondle her breasts through her leather jerkin. The dangerous gleam in her eye stopped him. Realization struck him and he spun around. He's not just a bounty hunter, Calron. His memory burned with the pain of an unusual magic. White fire wielded against him by this man in green. He's an enchanter. Calron's attention snapped directly to Gawan. Oh, really? His white-blue eyes glared into the placid face, staring blankly back. A simple bounty hunter wasn't enough to pit against bad old Calron. They sent a man of power. He snatched up Gawan's right hand. Watching for any reaction of which there was none, hmm. he then inspected the gold ring on the enchanter's fourth hmm. finger. And here is proof. He dropped the hand as if it repulsed him utterly. Ugh. I didn't think such fools still existed. So what's the difference between him and you? Silence! 
and will not explain such trivial things to fools. We have work to do. Before turning away, mage-eyed enchanter with careful, if contemptible, respect. Clough hmm. took quiet notice. Watch them until I get back. Kill anyone if they move. I must fetch the map. Before this day is through, I will claim my throne of power. Gunther looked lustily at Flaina. Let me dispatch some of them for you, Calron. I want this half-plot now. He slid his hands over her shoulders and lightly across her chest, then pressed his tongue to her cheek. If I allowed you to kill them now, Gunther, then you would have to be my dragon fodder. The fair-haired man glowered at him with unbridled hate. Don't you threaten me, rat man. I could break you in half if I so choose. Whenever I so choose. Gunther lowered his gaze reluctantly. Yes, master. You can carve up a couple of them. Play your sex games with the half-breed woman. When I have finished with them, and only then, he whirled about and marched back the way he had come. of Doom, Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. The sound plays were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices are performed by Geraldine Cummings, Kevin Norris, Richard Hammer, Darcy Aradell Hotelling, Adam Woodard, Mary Celeste, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel is available through Amazon.com or on Kindle Books, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.